Hey, I'm Marty Dodson. And I'm Clay Mills. Welcome to Songtown on Songwriting. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Mark Bright, songwriter, publisher, producer of such superstars as Carrie Underwood and Shakira. I asked Mark about his involvement with the country legendary trio Rascal Flat. So let's jump on in. Make sure you stick around at the end. I'm going to kick it over to Marty for a great songwriting lesson. We're here with Mark Bright. Mark, I want to talk to you a little bit about Rascal Flats. Because you you were there from the very beginning with those guys, right? I put the band together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I was like right up at the... Well, I had continued to work uh, at EMI Music Publishing as a staff producer um, and uh, A&R guy for the publishing company. Uh, but uh, after Blackhawk, my... my my head had grown to enormous proportions <laughs> to where I couldn't fit into most doors. <laughs> and, and, and in the course of that, proceeded to ruin several careers along the way. Um, so in 98, uh, I was invited to leave EMI. <laughs> and, uh, and this was a very sobering point, uh, aspect and um, time of my life. Um, I thought, oh boy, what am I going to do? Well, a couple of weeks weeks after that, Donna Hilly, who was running Sony ATV Tree, uh, said uh, asked me to um, come join a uh, uh, come start a joint venture with her, and she had been she she never spoke to me before that. It's like this wow. woman I thought hated me, um, but she kept her eyes on everybody, and like we were uh, Sony ATV Tree was a big competitor of EMI's, and they had Don Cook, a real well known great producer, right. through, all through the nineties, and. He, his career, he wanted to really start retiring and backing off. So she offered me this joint venture. And um, I'm going to get the Rascal Flats yeah. in a second. Um, but I signed this this little, this young bloke who had had a, a record deal on Arista. And, um, and he had a, because he'd gotten that record deal, EMI paid him this big, huge publishing advance. So he'd gotten advance money from the record company. It was heirs to careers record back in those days mm-hmm. with that imprint. And uh, he was getting a six-figure publishing salary. Well, it tanked. So EMI dropped him immediately. Um, and I had seen this him slowly, his, his songwriting improving um, sort of exponentially. And I thought, you know, I'm, he's going to be my first writer. I'm going to sign it. I'm going to sign that kid. So... Um, I signed him in um, 99, 1999. You're fixing to blow one of my later questions. But, oh, I'm but so go sorry. Ahead. <laughs> I am so sorry. But it, it's chronologically. It's, yeah. um, signed him, and, and about a month after I signed him, he came to me and said, um, I need to go. I've got my father worked, out, worked it out for me to go back to med school, which he had stopped before to write, and it didn't work out. He says, but I promise you I'll write every day. I'll bring my buddies down to write with me. And I said, oh, great. My first signing is going to go back to med school. <laughs> this is perfect. This is so my life. Um, so he, he made good on it. And he, he um, in our first year of, of this publishing joint venture called Terrorist Music, he got 44 songs recorded. And that writer was Brett James. Uh, and it was just unbelievable to the success he uh, 
he uh, attained early on and continues to attain. Did he make day. it to med school or he, he, he quit again for the yeah. second time. And, yeah. and uh, after, after he got the, one of his early cuts was a, it wasn't a single, but it was a song that was on Faith Hill's Breathe album that sold 11 million records. Yeah. Oh, man, we were rocking and rolling. That, yeah. The mechanical roll in those days was yeah. huge. Um, so that was, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, oh, Clay, to, to mess that up. <laughs> um, but uh, so this publishing company was um, doing really well right off the bat. Um, this uh, artist at the time on Atlantic Records named Mila Mason came to me and said, these, these, guys, there's, these guys are playing in this, this pickup kind of band on Printer's Alley. Um, and uh, you ought to go see them. I'm like, yeah, right, Mila, great. You know, <laughs> and she, she, like, I think she came back to my doorway three different times saying, you've got to go hear these guys. The lead singer is weirdly great. And I go see him at the, whatever the fiddle steel guitar bar, yeah. I think is what it's called. And I saw him, and there were like six guys up there. And, and I'm thinking, well, they're good, but I don't know who's doing what. So the next day, I said, come to my office. Let's talk. These six guys show up, and and uh, I uh, – and so three of the guys were sort of talking to me. The other ones were kind of looking out the window or looked like they were sort of a pseudo-security guard kind of deal. It was weird. And uh, – so I got a sense of the room, and, uh, and I said, okay, you three come back tomorrow. The rest of you guys, you know, it's nice to meet you. So you're back to another trio. Right. Blackhawk was yeah. a trio. And um, and so uh, they came back, and uh, we started. Uh, so I signed them to a production deal, signed them to a publishing deal, also signed on to manage them. And... Um, uh, that was Rascal Flats. And, um, you know, it was a quick ride to the top. I, we recorded three original songs for, um, to, to get them to, to secure a record deal. Uh, and I, I had some buddies, my peers back in those days that we all played each other stuff. So one of my close friends was Dan Huff went over to his house one day and said, so, so what are you working on? I said, well, these, these three young guys, um, and they really wanted to make a bluegrass record, but, you know. Well, in fact, that first cassette that was going around on the three sides you cut, they sounded a little bluegrassy. Mm-hmm. And somebody had asked me, well, maybe you should write with these guys. And it sounded bluegrassy. And I was like, <laughs> uh, mm, uh, I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> it like, shows the difference between me and you. Totally. But, you know, um, but, you know, the, but Gary was an arm, a white, yeah. a blue-eyed R&B I just singer, didn't hear you know? it on that original Right, because, yeah. because they were playing, you know, mandolins and all this stuff. Yeah. And, and uh, so I said, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not interested in making a bluegrass record with you, but I'll make a country record, you know. So that's how it all worked out. So I was at Dan's house, and I, I played him the three sides. He was like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. He goes, I want a friend of mine to listen to it. And I said, before I could say who... He was on the phone talking to Doug Howard at Lyric Street. Mm-hmm. I go in later that afternoon. I get to call the guys and say, you got to get together, put on some some nice-looking clothes. Don't stink. Take a shower. <laughs> and um, and we go over to Lyric Street and and just blew Doug Howard away. And his boss, Randy Goodman, was out of town at Hilton Head. He called him on the spot there with us in the room, said, Randy, you got to come back early. Just, we've, got, we've got our act. We've got the, wow. you know. Randy comes back, so we do the whole process again. 
make them take showers, use some deodorant, <laughs> come in and, you know, they just killed it. And they had, they got the deal. Awesome. Um, so when you're working in a, in studio with a group like Rascal Flats, what do you, how do you define your role as a producer? What, what do you do in the studio that, that makes you a producer? My, my role back then was really a, sort of a lot bigger in that I was um, a talent scout. I was an A&R guy. I was a music publisher. And then after they were signed and we got this big deal, I became their manager and um, their mother. Uh, uh, so I think my role as a record producer is, is all of those things uh, because you know they when they first when they did this first album they wanted to record all their songs but they were crap you know right. they 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 weren't they hadn't put in the hours and the time to be songwriters right. and they thought well you know anybody can do that but even though I published them I made them record um, outside songs and right. it was very frustrating for them um, but they. You know, once they started having hits, which was the first single again, and then one after another, they started seeing that, wow, this songwriting thing, we need to we'll sort of hunker down on this. So we started setting them up with seasoned songwriters, and, uh, um, you know, um, they started having hits that they wrote. Um, so that's that's a big role of mine is developing um, young artists, young artist writers to actually be artist songwriters. And uh, another role is, I mean, I, my, I, my house was paid off at the time. I had to take out a mortgage on my house to get them off the road. Two of them were playing with Shelly Wright at the, at, at, <laughs> and Gary, the lead singer, was, uh, um, was digging, flattening out grounds in people's backyard to put above ground swimming pools in them, you know, which is a terrible job. Um, but that's how so you invested in them and to get them off the road. I, I, I you know, I gave them salaries, um, monthly salaries, couldn't pay them enough in the publishing deal to make that. So, I, and, you know, and, and, uh, borrowed my instruments and bought instruments and, you know, it was just an expensive endeavor and uh, all on the, the hope that, yeah, this is, this band is as good as I think it is. And, um, um, and then, you know, lo and behold, it just blew up. Wow, uh, like way beyond what 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 yeah. I was thinking it was going to be, you know. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a good thing. Do you have when you're in the studio? What? How do you pull like a great vocal performance out of a Gary Lavox or a Carrie Underwood? Or all these great singers that you worked with. I mean, you've worked with some awesome singers. How do, you, how do you get, like, the best out of them? Well, you happen to mention two singers that, you know, honestly, if you just put them on a microphone, right. any microphone, <laughs> you've got a great song, and say, okay, push record, yeah. go. Because um, they're not they're not mortals as singers. Right. They they are way of, you know, Carrie Underwood has this, uh, it's almost like a supernatural gift with, with her voice. But so does Gary. Um, now, with Gary... You know, I had to pull him back. Like, I, I can remember, um, God bless the broken road. He would want to sing the verses with all these runs in it. It's like, yeah. no, no, the song isn't about that. It's about just putting your heart and soul into this simple melody. Because this melody is so good, let it be that melody. Right. There's nothing you have to add to it to make it any better. Um, 
And so he did. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, that's one of, uh, to me, that's one of the best Gary LaVox vocals of the entire career uh, because he's just out there in front uh, and he's not trying to do acrobatics and he's just, right. he just sounds amazing. And he is amazing. He continues to be amazing. But Carrie, um, it was just literally, it was more, really more about, okay, let's just find the right songs, the great songs, it's, you know, and record them uh, because she could sing anything. Her her gift of her interpretive skills were just enormous. Right. Other singers, you know, it's it's about getting the proper motivation, understanding what the song is actually saying, and and um, what we need to do to to accurately and and musically convey it. Yeah. Um, and so that could be that can be tricky sometimes. Awesome. So, just to go back to um, I was going to bring up Brett James because. It seems like you've you've signed several writers that ended up going on and having hits. Um, I know one really well because it happened to be me. But <laughs> um, but what did you see in writers before the rest of the world saw it? What what were those qualities? Because we have a yeah. lot. I mean, we have people watching tonight from Sweden, from all over. People here in Nashville, Canada, Australia, and. They're all, I know every one of them, because I was wondering this, what do they need to improve on? What What are those qualities you look for that makes you want to sign a writer? Well, let's talk about you for a minute. You know, um, I, I can recall really well that you, man, you're, you just write from a different point of view. Mm. Um, and clearly you were already a, a well-defined songwriter. You You knew how to do a basic structure of a song. But you just had this thing that was fresh. Um, again, it was your point of view. So a southern boy different. living in New York City, I yeah. think, sort of matriculated into this this little songwriting beast that you were and are, and um, and that was the thing that that piqued my interest. What jumps out at you right now that? That you that just makes you jump out of your seat. It's still a point of view. Hearing a song, I just um, then I go, "Wow, I have not heard a song that's been written this way before." Worry about writing a great, great song, and and then after you've actually done that, then start worrying about the peripheral stuff. Because you can produce a great song any number of ways. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think because there's a lot of voices out there that tell young writers you gotta. Research the market. You got to know what everyone else is doing. And so far, what I've heard you say tonight is you like somebody that's coming from a different angle. Right. You know, it's got to be enough in the ballpark where you can take it and and produce it for radio. But I I would think that a writer showing you something that was different is going to get your attention way more than sounding like another Brett James song. Right. But again, what you did um, as, as a young writer, as a young Clay Mills, you, it was different. You, um, it was a different perspective. And then when you started having hits, people started copying that. Yeah, and then the it's not fresh want, anymore. <laughs> right. So, but I want so you I have want to, those writers yeah. that do what you do. Right. And the, the same holds true with Brett. You know, um, uh, you have to keep reinventing yourself. Yeah, um, and because uh, there's going to be a whole flurry of writers coming up behind it, going, I, I can do a, a variation of that and right. get away with it. And sometimes you can. Yeah. But the lasting careers are those writers um, that are thinking about that. I have this 
great hook and this great story to tell behind that hook. And uh, and let's write that. And so you still think those great hooks are important? Oh, boy, yeah. Well, we're going to wrap it up. Um, it was great having you. Good to see you, my friend. Yeah. I'm going to kick it back over to Marty with another Level Up Your Songwriting lesson. Take it away, Marty. Hey, it's Marty Dodson. I recently published a book I uh, wrote with Bill O'Hanlon called Song Building, um, How to Write Better Songs Faster. And one of the chapters in there is about writing to your title. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I've, I've heard people say that they write from a title. And I want to suggest a little different approach because I think it's important if you know your title when you start writing, then you can make everything in that first verse point to that. Um, so that when you get to the title, people go, oh, yes, wow, that, I don't see how it could have been anything else. Even though that was unexpected, um, it was inevitable that they would get to that title from what they said because I see how they led me there. That's what you want, ideally, in a hit song, is you want to write toward that title so that everything you're saying in the first verse leads the listener up to this point, and then, boom, you come in with that title. Then in the second verse, you have to figure out how to write back to the title again. So I kind of think of it as this circle where you have your title. The first verse, you're starting down here. You write to the title. Second verse, you've got to go back around that circle and write to that title again so that it's everything in the song is pointing to that big idea or that big moment in the song. If you don't do that, it can be really confusing for your listener. A lot of times I critique songs and I can tell if the people that writing the song knew the title from the start or if they discovered the title as they went along because I'll start looking at the song and it'll be uh, going over here, it goes over here, it goes over here, kind of wanders all around and then they arrive at a title and the rest of the song makes sense. And it's really easy to tell when people don't write to that title. So my suggestion for you is to get in the habit of finding your title, agreeing on your title, before you start writing the song, make a blueprint of that so that everybody in the room is on the same page, and then make sure that everything you're saying is pointing toward that title. In the first verse, in the second verse, in the bridge, every time you have to get back there, you've got to make sure that everything is pointing you, you know, going around that circle to the title. Try that the next few times you write. I think it's going to provide some extra clarity to what you say. And I think you're also your listener is going to have a more fulfilling experience when they listen to your songs because they're really going to get what you're trying to say. And your big idea is going to be bigger because everything in the song points to that. Give that a whirl. And uh, if you feel like it, check out Songtown, songtown.com. We've got about a thousand people from all over the world that uh, love to write, love to encourage each other and connect to uh, co-write, collaborate. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon.